Uh, it would make our lives more rational, make our lives um, more more coordinated. It would it would uh, uh, it would solve the fact that that the week is this sort of frustratingly independent time unit. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. My guest today is David Hankin, author of a book called The Week, A History of the Unnatural Rhythms That Made Us Who We Are. I first became aware of David's work when I came across an article in the Atlantic magazine titled, We Live by a Unit of Time That Doesn't Make Sense. And while that's not totally true, in my opinion, there's a lot about this world that doesn't make sense. There's a lot about time that doesn't seem to make sense. And David explores that. He is a professor of history at Berkeley. His research interests include America since 1607 and the way that timekeeping affects the ways that we live. His book's website explains that we take the seven-day week for granted, rarely asking what anchors it or what it does to us, yet weeks are not dictated by the natural order. They are, in fact, an artificial construction of the modern world, an investigation into the evolution of the seven-day week and how our attachment to its rhythm influences how we live is what this book is all about. I am a learning nerd. If you know me, you know that. I really enjoyed this book. I learned a lot about it. But one of my biggest takeaways, and I don't want to steal the thunder of this interview, is just how much of the world in which we live really is constructed of social agreements. And what's cool to me about that is if we've made it up once, we can make it up again. So uh, I hope you enjoy this interview, learning from David. Uh, I really enjoyed this book. I loved talking to David. I think he's a fascinating guy, exploring some interesting things. So if you are like me, a fellow learning nerd. Uh, I think you'll enjoy this conversation. Before we end, as I usually do, we get into David's writing habits and routines. And he has some fascinating answers as well in the Enlightening Lightning Round about travel, about money, and about other things. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, David Hankin. David, welcome to the School for Good Living. Nice to be here, Brilliant. Thank you for having me on. Will you tell me, please, what is life about? I can't speak for anybody else, uh, but for me, uh, life is about making connections with people, um, lifelong connections, connections with individuals, connections with groups, uh, connections with people you just met, connections with people you know you're never going to see again, uh, connections with people that you think might, might actually transform your life. Mm. That's it for me. Yeah. I love that. Tell me, how do you go about that? I go about that, I guess, by trying to be open to the possibility that someone will be in my life forever and also open to the possibility that I'll never see them again. Mm-hmm. Um, keeping both those things in mind, I think, has helped me, uh, um, helped me listen to people, helped me be aware of people, and helped me think about what life looks like from their perspective. Mm. That reminds me of something someone once told me about people enter your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. You know, and, uh, I, I really like that, that philosophy. I've not heard that, but you know, it's nice. Yeah. So something I've really been yearning to know the answer to, and if there's anyone on the planet that can answer, I'm, I'm, I'm believing it's you. Will you that. me definitively 
Does the week begin on Sunday or Monday? All right. Well, uh, the week begins whenever you want it to begin. Uh, but um, most <laughs> most places in the world that I've uh, been able to figure out for think of the week as beginning on on Monday, and they think of the week as uh, as having what we call a weekend. Right. So the week ends with with the days that you take off in the United States. Pretty distinctively, uh, the week I think does normatively begin on Sunday, uh, and uh, in the period that I have studied, the 19th century, it was defined by law as beginning on Sunday. Um, and there are reasons for that. Uh, and it's really I'd say mostly the, the legacy of uh, Puritan Sabbatarianism. So this is a little bit in the theological weeds, uh, but I'm happy to go there and <laughs> we can just stop when it gets uh, too detailed. So uh, uh, for much of the history of Christianity, especially in uh, the in the Catholic Church, uh, the idea was that the Lord's Day uh, was really quite different from the Sabbath of the Hebrew Bible. So, um, the the method of counting days in the Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible didn't really bind uh, Christian practice. Um, but Puritan Sabbatarians. Um, and especially in England and in Northern Europe, uh, disagreed uh, after the Protestant Reformation. They began arguing that, in fact, uh, the Christian Sabbath was rooted in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and in the, the prohibition of work on the seventh day, but that uh, um, uh, after, after the resurrection, that was shifted to the first day. So they, they maintained the Hebrew Bible's count, which is six days you shall work, and on the seventh you shall rest, and the seventh was Saturday. Uh, but they said, no, but now we, we, will, uh, now we, have, we rest on the first day. So they, by keeping the count, uh, it made Sunday the first day. And, uh, and in fact, many, um, many Puritans and Quakers and other sort of non uh, I call them dissenting Protestants, Protestants who are not part of the Church of England, uh, didn't use the, the essentially pagan names that we use for the days of the week, naming them for the planets, um, and instead called them first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, Sabbath, uh, which uh, is a way of naming days in lots of languages. It's certainly the way of naming days in Hebrew, uh, which makes sense. Um, but also, interestingly, it's, it's, uh, there are languages like Greek and Portuguese that also use that numbering system. But the funny thing is that in Greek and Portuguese, you still begin on Monday, which is called second day. So second day, third day, fourth. Right? So, uh, so um, in English, we, uh, use, we don't use the ordinal uh, day names. We don't call them by, by the numbers. Um, but in the United States, uh, there is a religious tradition of using the number days and the number days always follow the Hebrew Bible. So they always follow the assumption that, that uh, the day we call Sunday, which is the Lord's day for Christians uh, is actually day one, not day seven. Mm. You know, this is something obviously you go deep into and, and so much more that I find fascinating in your book, the week, a history of the unnatural rhythms that made us who we are. And part of what I love so much about this inquiry, it's the kind of thing that many people, I think myself included, don't really give a lot of thought to, 
yet it's part of a world that we're born into. And there's these agreements that we just accept as true, right? Or real. And I suppose they are because they're, <laughs> they shape our lives and we all seem to abide by them. But something that um, I just find really interesting is how much of it really is, A, how much of it really is changeable, right? How much of it through, like you were saying, there are actual laws or there's, you know, agreements that are created or differences in cultures. But so how much of it is changeable? And then um, the other thing that's really remarkable to me about it is how little of this with the weak actually ties or maybe none <laughs> ties to natural systems, right? Which I had no idea. I feel really ignorant now, but, but will you, let me just back up a little bit because I, I definitely want to dive into both of those things, but I know that writing a book is no small task that it, these things take in many cases, years, it's a lifetime of research or curiosity that you put into, you know, a project like this. Why did you, why did you write this book and how did you hope the world would be different because it exists? Okay, the, uh, the first question is probably easier to answer than the second, but, um, well, uh, okay, so, so for the first question, I'd say a couple, a couple of things are a relevant background about me. Uh, one is more short-term, which is that for the last 30 years, so that's the more short-term answer, but for the last 30 years, uh, I've been a historian of the United States, and I'm interested um, in my teaching and in my, my writing about... Uh, uh, the origins of the modern world, and especially exactly what you were just talking about, brilliant about the kinds of unspoken agreements that we have that structure our lives. So I study ordinary people and ordinary life in 19th century America, and I try to figure out um, what changed in their lives that uh, made their society uh, more recognizably modern, because I have always had a suspicion that that was the period when lots of the rules were written, lots of the structures and institutions that we don't think about uh, were, were introduced. So we do think about some of them. We think about, you know, uh, industrialization or railroads or electromagnetism or certain forms of capitalism, but we don't uh, uh, think about things that don't have spectacular technologies or weren't spoken about a lot of the time. So I've, I've written a number of books uh, at this point about uh, things that I think really changed ordinary life in 19th century America that I see as sort of part of the construction of the unspoken agreements we have of, of, uh, uh, about what, what connects people. So that's one answer, uh, which would say that I decided over the course of my um, of my study that the, the seven-day week was actually a very powerful institution and was shaping life in, in new ways. The longer answer is that I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home in New York City, and my own life was and continues to be uh, thoroughly shaped by the weekly calendar in many ways more than by other, other calendars. Uh, so I understood, so I always knew whether it was Tuesday or Wednesday and had all kinds of practical implications, but, but um, I noticed that the rest of the world seemed to to be that way as well, I could explain how that came to be for my own family, but I was wondering how that really came to be for everybody else. Uh, um, and, and in some ways, being part of a, a minority religion in the United States um, uh, sort of alerted me to the way which people can experience the world quite differently. Yeah. And we talk often about those differences. And sometimes it's harder to explain the similarities. Uh, and the week is one of those institutions that binds all kinds of people and uh, who often think that 
their lives are quite different. It nonetheless al- allows them to uh, to to be on the same on the same page, or in this case, on the sa- on the same calendar. Uh, yeah. So those are probably the two big broad reasons why I became interested in in writing a book of the week. They asked how I thought the world would be different. I mean, I I tend not to. Uh, allow myself to imagine that anything I write is going to make the world different. But um, I did hope that this would uh, uh, do two kinds of things for two kinds of people. I primarily hope that uh, people who think about time, um, and there are lots of such people out there, uh, uh, who are used to thinking about time in terms of clocks, would uh, come to appreciate the ways in which calendars actually uh, play a huge role in structuring our sense of of the passing of time, uh, including like the sh- this incredibly short time that we have on Earth. Uh, people think about that question all the time. I thought you know, calendars play an interesting role in that. People usually don't think about the week, so I thought that would be uh, wouldn't change their lives, but I thought that that would speak to people's curiosity. And then I also thought that. Uh, the much smaller group of people who study 19th century America um, might uh, start to notice the way in which the week is a kind of uh, unacknowledged building block. Maybe all people who study history, uh, an unacknowledged building block of um, of the societies and the experiences that, that we all study. So I tried to write this uh, both for for readers who don't usually read about history and for readers who do so all the time. Right on. Well, I, I, I know I emailed you kind of over the holidays as we're recording this. It's January of 2022. And uh, this was one of my holiday reads. Uh, I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed a lot of it was totally new information to me and just learning things as simple as, you know, the seven day, although there does seem to be, I don't know what you would call it, like a coincidence or um, a synchronicity to many cultures that have used and, and have lived by a seven day week, but it's far from the only one. I had no idea that in the French revolution, the decade, like, like a 10 day week was yeah. proposed or actually implemented as I understand in Russia, a six day week in Africa, other days or in places like Mexico or Japan, that it was brought there. It was imposed by legislation at a point in time that we can get to. Right. But will you talk about what, like, why is it Oh, and this one too, I really want to explore with you that clocks ran for eight days in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. What, what's up with an eight day clock? What is that about? So, you know, I, this is a, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll start with that one. Uh, this is something I, I, I feel like I never fully unraveled. And I uh, spoke to clockmakers and read a little bit about clock history. Uh, um, but in, in this period, uh, a dominant clock form was a clock that you had to rewind every eight days. And I suspect and continue to, to believe that, uh, that that's not a coincidence. I mean, there, there were some technological limitations uh, associated with it. And um, there also were 30 day clocks. Uh, but um, but I, I think it was decided that eight days was sufficiently long uh, that people wouldn't mind wouldn't mind rewinding, rewinding, and uh, uh, an an eight an eight day clock is uh, does fit the week because it it uh, allows you to to rewind it at the same point in the cycle and never actually run out. Mm-hmm. Right? 
for clocks, it's better to rewind them too early than too late. Sure. Uh, like filling up your gas tank. So, uh, um, yeah, so, the, so, so, so that's why I think it, 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 it was useful. Um, I noticed it because uh, uh, we, we often look to clock history and the history of chronometric devices to figure out how people's experience of time changes. So uh, I, I was doing research to see whether, whether people had, had clocks that actually measured the week. And except for a very, Thomas Jefferson has some special clock that he designed. Uh, a couple other inventors did so, but ordinary people didn't have a, a, a machine that told them um, what day of the week it was, but they did have this machine that kind of reinforced what they already experienced, which is that the, the time goes by in, in these seven day intervals. So if you live a life where, where you know, when Sunday rolls around or even when Tuesday rolls around, uh, you, you sort of feel like, oh, seven days have elapsed since the last time I did X, I spoke to my mother, I went to, you know, went, went to the gym, whatever. Uh, uh, that reminds you of it. If you have to rewind your clock, you, you do so. So the, the, the eight day clock was really an, um, a popular early and mid 19th century device. Uh, and then ultimately clocks, clocks changed. But yeah. Interesting. So in the book, you I want to come back to Thomas Jefferson, but I want to do it in the context of something you mentioned early called, I think you call it time consciousness. Mm-hmm. Right. What what is time consciousness and why does it matter? Good question. I mean, uh, time consciousness could include a couple of things. It can include time perception, <clears throat> just you know, our our sense of how much time has elapsed uh, from one event to another. Um, but there's also time consciousness in the sense of uh, our awareness of the, the flight of time, the passing of, of, of time and our awareness of where we are in some larger time frame. Um, and that has to do with you know, our own mortality. It has to do with uh, our sense of coordination with other people. Um, yes, all of those things for me count as, as, as time consciousness. Yeah. Mm. So with Thomas Jefferson, um, you, I remember reading his name in the book for some of the ideas he proposed about neighborhoods and one school per six miles and so forth. Mm-hmm. But but I don't remember you mentioning any of the special timepieces he, he he had. What will you talk about that? Uh, well, you know, Tom, Thomas Jefferson was 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 an was an inventor, and he uh, uh, apparently I haven't seen it. I don't know if it survived, but uh, but he owned us must uh, of his own design a special clock um, that uh, would was set to to indicate ca- it was a calendar clock, mm. and some of the, there is a big beautiful one. A very old one from the early modern period in Strasbourg, France, that I, that I've seen. Also, uh, you can design a clock to, uh, uh, in the same way we have watches that tell us what they have the date of the month it is. You could have a clock that tells you uh, the calendar as well. That is uh, set to every twenty four hours, flip a day, or every seven days, flip a week. Uh, the month is a little bit hard, harder to do, but you can do that as well. And Thomas Jefferson owned one of these and he was quite proud of it. Um, but yeah, that, that may have been a footnote in the book. I don't recall where, where, where it was. I'm pretty sure it made its way in. Though. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So I w- something else um, that I want to explore as it relates to time consciousness and, and again, the mutability of, of time and the social agreements and so forth is uh Will you talk about what happened? <clears throat> Excuse me. Will you talk about what happened between Wednesday, September 2nd and Thursday, September 14th? 
In 1752, you mean? 1752, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah, were you last year now? It's 1752. So this, this is a, a cool thing, right? Um, so the, uh, the Christian world uh, adopted the Julian calendar that was used in, in, in Rome and spread it across uh, um, much of Christendom over, over centuries. Uh, and the Julian calendar assumes that the year is 365.25 days long, that the solar year is that long. But it's not. It's slightly less than that. So what happens is slowly over time, uh, the, the, uh, the calendar year and the solar year get, you know, they begin to diverge. Right? Uh, you don't really notice it in your lifetime because it's really moving so, so slightly. Uh, but over centuries, it does, it does actually begin to be noticeable and it changes, say, the relationship between Easter and, and the equinox and, 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 and things of, of, of or, or change the relationship between the calendar e- equinox and, and the observable equinox. So, uh, so the Pope Gregory uh, instituted the, the Gregorian calendar, um, which makes a small tweak that we still observe today, which is to say that instead of having a leap year every four years, we have a leap year mostly every four years, but three times every 400 years, we skip the leap year. And that's still part of what we practice? Yeah, so uh, uh, you, you and I um, will, uh, will lead lives that, uh, uh, I assume uh, we will lead lives where we actually have a, a February 29th every four years. But our grandparents did not because in 1900, we didn't have a leap year. No, this would really mess because this is how I remember presidential elections. It's every leap year. But that right. was always the case. Right. So, it, yeah. But in 1900, uh, well, and we guess it may have been bad luck. The guy who was who was elected in 1900 uh, um, was assassinated sh- shortly into his into his, his second term. But, yeah, uh, the, the scheme is that um, every hundred years you forego the, the 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 leap year, but every 400 years you reinstate it. So in 2000, we did have it. Wow. But in 2100, we will not have a leap year. I so, had no idea. That's the fix, right? And that's great. But what do you do about all of the, all of the, the all the centuries where you missed that? How do you correct to get it? So um, uh, when the Gregorian the Gregorian calendar was uh, was um, was ad- adopted by different parts of the of the Christian world at different times um, in Russia, for example, they didn't they didn't adopt it until after the the. Uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, um, but uh, in the British Empire, they uh, in, in, they adopted it, imposed it um, in the in the 18th century, and they imposed it on the colonies in 1752. And um, it 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 did a couple things. One thing again is it meant that they wouldn't have a leap year in 1800, but um, that wasn't a noticeable thing. Uh, it did one thing that was quite noticeable, which was it switched the beginning of the year from March to January, which is sometimes confusing when people look at, at, at things that happened in the United States. Like George Washington was born before this change took place. And he was born as, as we observe it on a, uh, in February, he was born February 22nd. Uh, but the question, what year was he born is a complicated question. 
So we say 1732, uh, but at the time it was actually 1731 mm. because they thought they they didn't flip the the year and, and until 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 March first. So that was one one change that took that took place. But the other thing was they had they decided to eliminate certain dates in order to get the calendar back aligned with what it would have been had they been counting it properly uh, all along since the time of, of Jesus. And so they, they, they said we have to get rid of 11 days. So they got rid of 11 dates on the calendar. They disappeared. Just for that one time, knowing they would be there next year, but hey, we're just going to kind of skip past these. <laughs> Correct. I mean, w- w- one, one way you could, you could uh, describe it is they, they said all along our dates have been wrong. Right. Like if, if, if suddenly we discovered that actually we've been, we, uh, we, we messed up, our calendars messed up. We thought today was January 14th. Uh, turns out it's actually January 25th. So we're not skipping those days. We're just correcting the calendar to, to, to uh, uh, sort of uh, compensate for our miscount. Or you could say we're skipping those days. But what they didn't do was skip any weekdays. Right. They so kept the weekly count. Yeah. And the weekly count, uh, remarkably, uh, has has been kept so far as 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 everyone is concerned um, from its inception. There have never been uh, religions, societies, cultures, nations, political movements that have disputed with one another as to where we are in the weekly count. Even though there's nothing in the natural world to to let us know whether we're right or wrong. I mean, the reason why people figured out that the Julian calendar. Uh, was a problem was because they could see um, that you know it's it's March it's March twenty first but the the sky doesn't exactly look like what it should look like on March twenty first because of the the equinox exactly yeah or or really you know and uh, uh, the, uh, if you, uh, detailed sophisticated studies of 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 the skies uh, uh, could have could have made, made that clear to people at many points. Um, and it's really w- with better uh, astronomical observation that this became apparent. But with the week, that would never happen. There's nothing that you can look at it in the world and say, you know what? We thought it was Wednesday, but actually it's Tuesday. Yeah. The only thing that keeps the week in place is human record keeping. That is so wild. So, you, so you'd think that we, we would disagree. You know, we keep different records, right? Or we, uh, we lose our record or something like that. Uh, but we don't disagree. The only... Yeah. Yeah, the only, the only, at this point, you know, the week is now a global timekeeping system, and everyone agrees. The only thing that is subject to disagreement, I suppose, would be where the international dateline is or should be. Yeah. Uh, but apart from that, the entire world agrees. You can call it different names. You can dis- disagree about where it starts. You can disagree about what it means. But no one disagrees about whether we have maintained this uh, continuous count of seven-day cycles. Um, God, yeah. It's it's really, I I mean, I might just be a nerd on this, but to me, it's mind blowing. And it is on so many levels, you know, from the synchronization of global activity, where all the, all these different cultures now, you know, for the most part, I'm sure there's still pockets here and there that might maintain their own practices or whatever, but that we really have unified in a way that as far as we know has never happened in human civilization, you know, is, is one thing. And another is this, it's like a theme I keep coming back to about the mutability that I just love this idea that we said, and like, Hey, we're actually wrong. 
we're wrong about what date, what the date is. Let's get corrected. And on that topic, I'm curious, by the way, like who is they? Like, who is it that's driving this? Is this, I mean, obviously you've talked about religion, religious leaders and there's politicians involved and I'm sure there were civic leaders and stuff like this, but how do these, how did this decision get made? Like, how did it get implemented and then rolled out? Well, it's interesting in different time periods, I would say um, uh, church leader, ecclesiastical leaders, religious leaders have, uh, um, have been the main forces uh, in, in the last 150 years. It's, it's been governments. I mean, so to, uh, uh, I mean, but we call it the Gregorian calendar because uh, the reform took place under Pope Gregory and it was with his authority. And uh, the, um, the society, the Christian societies that that uh, that did not adopt it, didn't adopt it because they didn't recognize the authority of the Pope, which is why it came later to 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 protestant societies and it also came later to eastern orthodox societies. so I, uh, the the they is is really i would say religious authority and you know the islamic calendar and the jewish calendar those were all determined by um by religious authorities and sometimes by the states that 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 imposed that religion like the state was a religious authority uh but there are all these things that have happened in the last 150 years um like uh time zones yeah um uh, those are introduced often in the case of time zones uh, were introduced by private corporations uh, like railroad companies had the had had had, had the need to coordinate to coordinate clocks across across time um, yeah. uh, and so they devised systems of time zones but ultimately governments had to uh, had to ratify that impose that and and they did by international agreement. Or I'll give you one other example, what we call daily saving time, uh, where, where, where clocks are officially moved one hour uh, back uh, or, 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 or forward um, for various purposes. That's, that's done by, by governments. Right. I, hate uh, that. I, think, yeah. I seriously hate daylight saving time. <laughs> you hate the switch or you hate being in one of the two phases? I hate the switch. I wish. I, and my understanding is that here in Utah, we've actually passed legislation that it will end as it has in places like what, Arizona or I think Hawaii yeah. doesn't observe it. If our neighboring States will also agree. <laughs> and I'm like, mm. right. No, I mean, I think there is a big move to eliminate the switch. Uh, but the, one of the problems is that people really, even people who agree with that disagree as to which, which they want to keep it as it's a little yeah. easier for Arizona, but they're sort of a little in between time zones. So, um, I don't think there's strong dis dis disagreement as to w whether they should always be uh, standard time or always be uh, daylight saving time because you can just because it's also unclear whether they should be mountain time or Pacific time. So that's kind of splitting the difference by being mountain standard all year long. Uh, yeah. But um, you know, and, and 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 Utah is also like borders a time a time zone, so they could make that decision as well. They could they could be mountain mountain standard but uh um yeah uh they're a little bit you guys are a little bit further further east than arizona so. yeah anyway so but but things like time zones and and, and daylight saving are are all conventions um they were imposed uh by governments and um uh the international date line would be another they're all kind they're all kinds of uh uh collective agreements uh that were um it's a basically uh uh agreed upon internationally around the period following World War I or during World War I. The, the World War played a large role in, uh, in creating a kind of international order that could do something like that. Uh, uh, so 
speaking of which, there was the same people who introduced uh, these ideas of uniform mean time zones and, and summertime and, and all, all that uh, also wanted to, to reform the calendar. They wanted to um, solve a real problem, which is that the week doesn't fit into any other calendar unit. It's not a neat subset of a month or a year or a century or anything else. Yeah, not, it's the only, not calendar, the only calendar unit like that. Sorry? Yeah, not, not the seven-day week, right? Well, no, yeah, the, the seven-day week doesn't fit in, right? Because, because the year is 365 days long and it's not divisible by seven. So, so yeah. what, if, what I say to you today is Friday, January 14th. In some sense, um, uh, Friday, January 14th, twenty. 22 is a is a redundancy i mean you know right january 14th 2022 is by definition friday but we have to actually say also friday because it's additional information because it changes every year so this causes all kinds of kinds of confusion you know uh, uh, people often make appointments and they say i'll meet you on friday January 13th, and then you don't know, well, there is no Friday, January 13th. Yeah. But um, you could have a calendar where every January 13th was the same day of the week. And you could have a calendar where there was uh, exactly the same number of weeks in every month and in every year. And that would solve all kinds of problems with accounting. And since people only, typically only work, people work by the week, but they sometimes get paid by or assessed by the month or the year. It's a, it's a technical accounting problem that they don't fit. So uh, the same reformers who had all these great ideas but had a standardized time in other ways, so, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll create a year that's essentially 364 days long plus some extra days. Those extra days would be part of the year, but they wouldn't be part of the week. They would be what people called extra hebdomadal, outside of the weekly cycle. So you could go, for example, from... Uh, Saturday, December 31st to blank holiday. And then the next day would be Sunday, January 1st. And it would solve problems. If you did that, then every year uh, uh, would have the same uh, alignment of weeks uh, of, uh, sorry, of dates and of dates and days. Um, and that didn't that didn't fly. It was one of those reform movements that's had lots of support and momentum and prestige, but ultimately um, it went up before the League of Nations, um, and it was defeated and uh, continued to sort of surface periodically thereafter. But by World War II, it was sort of clear that that movement that that movement that movement died. So the the uh, the, the week um, is in on the one hand. Uh, seems like one of the most changeable units of time because it wasn't universal and it was not really dictated by nature or even suggested by nature. On the other hand, it's proven to be one of the most difficult and in, to change. It's one of the most entrenched calendar units that, that we have. And even though it causes all kinds of problems for other, other uh, systems of timekeeping, like the month and the year, um, no one really wants to to tinker with it. And this, this was a change, not in its how long, it wasn't like the French revolution wanted to make it 10 days. It wasn't like the, the Soviet revolution that made it five days and then six days and tried to make it non-synchronized. This was leaving everything about the week alone. It just says one day a year or two days on a leap year will be blank. They'll have no weekday value. And that switched to the structure of the week proved unacceptable to masses of people in 
throughout the world and especially in the West where, where the, where the movement took place. So is this what's called the, is this what's the international fix calendar? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that, and that was amazing to me to read about that and to read that some, as you said, it was very prominent. Like it, it, it actually seemed to have a lot of support and people like Kodak and people like the Sears Roebuck and company actually used this. Yeah. No, George Eastman of the Kodak Corporation was in some ways one of like the real sort of uh, uh, the fathers of this movement or one of the, the, the leading lights. Um, uh, and he, he approached it primarily from an accounting, uh, accounting standpoint, but then it turned into a much larger movement that we, we could really all be on the same uh, it would make our lives more rational, make our lives um, more more coordinated. It would it would uh, uh, it would solve the fact that that the week is this sort of frustratingly independent time unit. Yeah. Well, you I, if I if I have it right, you write in your book that that um, Kodak adopted this in the twenties as an accounting practice, as you said, and then held on to it all the way until nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, I for, I forget when they when they stopped doing that. And if I said it in the book, then I hope it's correct. I've got it right here that says Kodak would maintain this accounting practice until 1989 and its founder, George Eastman, devoted extraordinary energy and resources to advocating what he saw in the words of his contemporary biographer as, quote, a natural evolution in modern life as inevitable as was standard time in 1884. That he, but that they, that's crazy to me in a way that they maintained this like asynchronous, it was asynchronous with the rest of society, a 13 month accounting calendar for like 70 years, as late as almost 1990. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, one, one way to, to, to think about it is that he was just obsessed with something that he thought would be better for the world. And he had the, and he had the power and authority to impose it on, 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 on his employees. Uh, another way to think about it, though, is that uh, lots of work cultures adopt their own calendar. Um, we're familiar with it, you know, uh, industries like hospitals yeah. that have to run continuously, uh, airlines uh, that have shifts that, that often straddle days and weeks. They create some version of their own calendar. Yeah. Schools increasingly sometimes have, uh, have, have schedules that don't quite conform to, to the week for various reasons we, we, we could talk about. So you could think of Kodak as being one of those workplaces. It yeah. didn't have to be. There was nothing about working for the Kodak Corporation that, that, that made the usual calendar uh, problematic. Uh, but people often come to adopt a different calendar for, 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 for work purposes. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And you see that even with something as simple as like a fiscal year, the difference between the calendar year and the fiscal year. So right. that makes sense. But one thing I'm, I'm really curious to know from your view is what would like, okay, so two, two things. One is, would we, in your opinion, would we be better off as a society if we implemented something like the international fixed calendar <laughs> and, or what might be the benefits be? That's, that's the first question. And here I'll stack questions. But the second is, do you see any major changes like this happening if you stretch out and kind of imagine hundreds of years into the future for humanity. And I know start, like if we do achieve, you know, if we go to Mars or we achieve interstellar travel, of course, this will change the way I think we think about time and our time consciousness. But do you see on this planet in the next decades or centuries that we will implement any major changes related to the way we think about or use time? 
back time? Uh, tough question, uh, especially when you frame it as broadly as the way we think about our use time. I'm sure there are. I have no particular insights into the, into into that. If you narrow it to the question of whether we're likely to change anything about the week, I do have some some thoughts. Uh, so uh, I don't think we're likely to change the. Uh, uh, to, to go with the uh, fixed calendar, to go with these extra abdominal days. I also don't think that if we did, it would change the structure of our lives all that much. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway. it would just be weird, right? Because it'd be weird to have a day that, uh, uh, so it would require a lot of mental adjustments. I don't think pr- it would have a lot of practical consequences, except it'd have enormous practical consequences for the for the you know the the hundreds of millions of people on uh, on the planet who were uh, attached to the week for religious reasons and would continue to experience their religious obligations on the old calendars. So that would be a really difficult thing. Yeah. And so uh, uh, a, a a a Muslim who wanted to uh, uh, treat Friday as a climactic prayer day would continue to do so, but now would be operating on on a calendar that wasn't aligned with secular society or business because, uh, um, you know, and, and uh, Jews who wanted to uh, uh, observe the Sabbath or everything else about Jewish liturgical life would continue to, to, to keep the old calendar. So it, w- it would create that kind of problem. Yeah. But um, I, I don't think actually living within uh, an international fixed calendar would, would feel any different because it's still still seven days. Uh, it'd just be weird every every year that you had this holiday. But we experienced that weirdness already. I mean, often when you have a holiday on a Monday and everyone else such a short week, I thought it was Tuesday. Yeah. Right. So 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 that weirdness, I think we 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 could live with um, w- whether we might have less of a need for a coordinated calendar at all as uh, certain technologies develop or if we were to travel to places that that cut us off from the from the astronomical rhythms of the earth uh, I, I think that's definitely possible um, uh, I think that uh, the, the kinds of electronic calendars that we already use that often um, that often obviate the need for remembering stuff or even having your appointments be regular. Uh, if my computer is really good at me, and I, I actually tend not to use electronic calendars. I have well, paper calendars like, like this one with you, but, but uh, as more and more of us um, have computers that, that will just uh, uh, essentially tell us when we have to go to the dentist, when, when our violin lesson is, and when, when we have to pay alimony and all that, um, uh, we might not need uh, to use the week as much as we do as a mnemonic device. And I think that would be really, uh, a really significant change. I don't look forward to it. I don't think that would be fun um, or good for us necessarily. But I do think in a, in a, uh, it's a subtle change, but that, that could happen that, that big. I, when I began writing the book, I was wondering whether the things that hold the week in place for us were unraveling, and some of them are, uh, uh, telecommuting definitely a big difference, and I think we sort of saw that um, the effect of working from home also during the, the pandemic. Um, uh, because, of course, one of the big things the week does is it it aggregates temporally as well as spatially work from 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 non work. Yeah. Uh, the more that that's been eroded by twenty four seven commerce and twenty four seven accessibility, uh, the the more that crucial. F- 
feature of the week is is jeopardized. I also suspected that one of the big things that anchored the week for for many people in in, in my generation was uh, uh, and even the generation after me was synchronized entertainment. So yeah. you know, your television show appears on this this you know movies come out on this moment. All all, all these synchronized entertainment forms uh, really shaped our experience of the week, and, and and I do think that they did, and that's definitely changed now with asynchronous entertainment with a one huge exception and i think we're able to really perceive its significance now and that's sports so uh uh live sports especially live team sports uh and most obviously football um really rely upon the technology of the week to stagger coordinate the activity of playing and watching 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 games uh and that kind of used to be the way entertainment worked in general with theater and television and 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 radio uh and uh increasingly it really is just sports but sports are extremely popular in the united states and football is an especially popular one so okay so those are all some things uh, ways in which the week could be uh losing its grip on us uh and they do make a difference but um but after the pandemic shutdown, I'm more and more shut, I'm more and more uh, convinced that we're still so attached to uh, these rhythms. We're so attached to the idea that our Tuesdays will be different from our Wednesdays that I, I don't think the week is unraveling so soon. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, all right. Thank you for that perspective. Well, we've covered we've covered a lot and I uh, appreciate you in, indulging my curiosity in so many of these things. I'm curious, what, what did you learn in the writing of this book that surprised you? What, what, um, really, um, what really like stood out to you? Well, uh, one thing that was important to me, but I'm not sure it, it's all that interesting uh, to non-historians, was I sort of figured this change would, would the change that I saw, which is that uh, a change from thinking of the week primarily as just dividing weekdays from, from weekends or secular and, and sacred time or, uh, or labor and leisure, uh, that the week began to really differentiate all seven days. Like the, in other words, the, I thought that the emergence of the kind of week that we have, where we care not just whether it's weekday or weekend, but we have very different lives on, on say, Wednesdays than we do from Thursdays, I thought that that would have emerged uh, in the middle of the 19th century. And over the course of my research, I decided it actually happened a little bit earlier. So that's, that's the kind of thing that historians care about. Uh, but, you know, for most people, middle, mid-19th century, early 19th century are basically just the same yeah. thing, old times. So um, that may not be so, so interesting, but that is an honest answer. Uh, I, I, I guess I, um, I was surprised by some of the things that didn't seem to, uh, to mark the week for people. I had thought, for example, that um, uh, food would play a huge role, as it has in, in more recent periods. Uh, food rituals, um, the, you know, the, the sort of early equivalents of the kind of Taco Tuesdays or, or, or just uh, institutional food, prov- food uh, provision would would anchor itself to the week so that you'd have this real visceral memory. Oh, like, you know, Wednesday is going to be pizza or Friday fish. And then, and, uh, um, and there was a lot less of that in the United States than in the time period that I studied, than I would have expected. Uh, that was sort of a little bit surprising. 
I, I was sort of hoping and expecting to find um, more women thinking about how their menstrual cycles uh, uh, either uh, aligned with or deviated from patterns. And I couldn't find much evidence of that. So there were, there were, there were definitely things I sort of expected to find and didn't find. Um, uh, but the truth is that it was less a story of, of, uh, of being surprised at what I saw than uh, uh, a story of my being happily surprised by what I was able to confirm. Mm. I sort of felt like, okay, well, you know, in my experience, and we all do this, you know, in my experience, I think of the week this way. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's idiosyncratic. And then you wonder whether other people think about the week that way too. And then you wonder whether they thought about the week in the past that way. And then you wonder whether they left any evidence that they did. And I was happily surprised that the answer to all those questions was kind of yes. Mm-hmm. I found all these people thinking about the week in idiosyncratic in ways I thought of as idiosyncratic. Yeah. Uh, and I found them speaking about it. And I found that it was connected to memory. That that's probably the the major um, uh, discovery. Might be a little bit a little bit strong and a little bit misleading because I I did wonder about it, and it's hard to prove anyway. But uh, the, the 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 big punchline that that I wasn't sure of when I started and I was more sure of when I finished was that uh, uh, the week is really a mnemonic device uh, and it's attached to uh, both the, the powers and the perils of human memory for us um, uh, in, a, in a number of ways. And the part of the reason why uh, we experience time passing quickly when we think about it in weeks um, is because of that. We remember our, our lives as a succession of weeks. We remember what we did uh, on a, a certain Tuesday. We remember it as, as, as a Tuesday. We don't remember it as like a 17th of a, of, of a month. And so uh, the, the week plays this weird role in, our, uh, in the grasp that we have or the grasp that we lose over, over, over our pasts. Uh, that's not its most practical function. Its most practical function I think really is coordinating act and scheduling activities among strangers. Yeah. The modern week does for us, what didn't do a long time ago is allows people to organize their lives in the future uh, uh, with some sense that uh, a repeated activity uh, will be easiest to coordinate and schedule if it's on the same day of the week and easiest to remember. So that's the, the biggest thing that the week does. It's something very practical and logistical, but the deeper thing that the week does and it's connected to uh, to the fact that we have weekly schedules and weekly habits. Um, is it really anchors our our, our memory? Uh, we relate to the the recent past and even a little bit to the distant past um, by thinking about weekly cycles. And to me, that that's 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 a deep um, that sort of a, a deep insight into into the uh, the implications of weekly timekeeping. Because yeah. when you say that that what a week does which is, I think, true uh, in the modern world is it, it coordinates schedules. That sounds like, you know, it's maybe just a disciplinary device or a way just to get, get us all to, to, fall, to fall in line. And that, um, that, you know, may not sound so, so interesting. Um, but when you think about the fact that the week is the calendar unit through which we both uh, experience and account for our pasts. You have some sense that the stakes of this uh, technology are are more interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, especially if you do a thought experiment, like what would life be 
in the absence of weeks or named or even numbered days, just yeah. continuous I, span of time. Like, what is that? <laughs> so to me, that, that that's a really interesting question. And I, and, and, and the way you frame it suggests that you think that we would be sort of how cut loose. And I yeah, I don't know if you use this word or like a temporal dislocation. Yeah, temporal dislocation or disorientation. Yeah, um, no, I, I I think that would be true, and 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 I, I, I think of of the problem that way because usually when you tell people what would we do if we didn't have weeks, they assume the stakes of that would be some kind of unsettling of the relationship between labor and leisure, and that would be true as well, of course. Uh, but that's not all that a week does. Right? Mm-hmm. So if we didn't have weeks, we'd probably come up with some other system for. For alternating labor and leisure. I mean, I would hope that we would. And lots of societies that um, that didn't have weeks had very different uh, systems for alternating labor and leisure. Often systems that that uh, were particular to a class or an occupation um, or a sector of of, of, of a job market. Uh, uh, and that's true. But I think that what you're saying is actually kind of um, at least more interesting and maybe in some ways more frightening. Like if we didn't have uh, the calendar units that we had, could we imagine an experience of time that essentially homogenized all days? Yeah. They're just, they're just days. And that's what people complained about during the pandemic shutdown. Yeah. They thought about Blur's Day or this day and that day. They were complaining about the homogeneity of time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, I think the last thing I want to ask in this in this uh, part of the interview is, um, is about this disconnection from natural cycles, right? As you point out in the book, it's not tied to, and in this conversation, you've mentioned like equinoxes and solstices and solar cycles and lunar cycles, like but tides or anything like that. So there's all these natural. And so this is where I might be connecting dots that really don't deserve to be, they have no connection perhaps, but, I have this theory like that. I, as I live that I think a lot of the un what we experience, what I experience is the unworkability on this planet, the depression, the anxiety, the loneliness, the meaninglessness, the um, you know, the in ecological devastation is this sense of disconnection from the natural world. And I, again, this might, this is where the connecting the dots that don't really have a connection might be happening. But, but I wonder if, the way we're living in this week is such a is significant part of our experience, the way we think about and structure and use time, but it's not tied to the natural world. And no wonder there's this drift, this separation, this, maybe this lack of appreciation or even reverence for, for nature. I don't know what the question is here, but there's something about the week and the implications of the fact that it is not actually tied to a natural cycle what are your thoughts about that? What that really means, like, and what that's what the impact of that is for us as humans? Okay, yeah. I, I think that's a great question, and I I sort of think uh, it's a question that that uh, other people have uh, raised with me, and um, I think I have a different perspective from you, but I should preface it by saying that I think yours is the more uh, I I think is 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 the more common perspective, the more popular perspective, and mine's, mine's, mine's the, maybe the more obstinate and idiosyncratic one. Okay. So, uh, so if, as I understand you, bro, you, you're, you're suggesting that if, if we really organize our lives 
by uh, time units that have no discernible connections to the natural world. It's just going to reinforce our alienation from nature, and it's just going to in, in, in enforce unhealthy ways of living and unhealthy ways of using the uh, resources on, on, on the planet. So I'll preface this by saying that I don't disagree with you about how our ways of living are unhealthy, uh, about our alienation or about our, um, uh, our, about our, our irresponsible, uh, uh, use of planetary resources. I think I get the sense that you, you and I are completely on the same page. I personally though, don't think that, uh, the fact that the weekly time unit is, a natural uh, 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 plays a big role in that. And I, there are a few reasons. One is just to, 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 to start, I, there are a lot of naturally based time units uh, um, that have also changed historically uh, and that also might be oppressive or alienating. Uh, um, and uh, so I, I don't think that just because something is natural that it means that it's necessarily good for us or that it's, you know, there, there, there are a lot of things in nature that we live by that, um, that produce conflict and, 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 and destruction, destruction also. So I, so I'm not someone who thinks that because something is, is that, uh, number two is that many of our, uh, time units that are rooted in some way in nature at this point are pretty artificial also. Yeah. So like day and night, um, are obviously natural time units, but we don't really, live by astronomical day and night we live by clock day and night and so uh that's that's a natural timing because it's certainly in, it's enforced on some level by by uh by by light but uh uh you know the fact that we we work what eight hour days or i don't know what people work 10 hour days or uh uh that's not suggested by 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 daylight because daylight varies it varies by latitude but it, 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 it varies by 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 season um uh and then there's the month i mean the month is 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 certainly suggested by a lunar cycle but um you know in uh in I mean, jews and, and and muslims and 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 um and so other societies as as well uh notice where we are in the lunar month, but um, in the United States, most people don't, and, and Christians don't. So uh, uh, the month has become completely artificial too. The Gregorian month is l- roughly lunar in length, an average length, um, but it is not lunar in phase. Right? Uh, knowing that today is January fourteenth doesn't suggest that we are a, a full moon. Right. Um, it has nothing to do with the moon. So, so, uh, so a lot of things that are 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 time units that are natural um are uh are really experienced uh as as not natural or have been transformed and uh, and others just aren't really natural at all uh, like the month and then the third thing i would say is that people are, are have been so surprised this is the, uh, this is not a surprise about my research it's a surprise about the reception of the book almost everyone i've spoken to has been very interested uh, some of them have been surprised some of them have actually uh, take an issue with my claim that the that the week is artificial. Uh, all of those reactions suggest that we don't actually really experience the week as artificial. We experience right. it as natural, and that's why people didn't want blank days uh, because it seemed to really misrepresent something fundamental about the character uh, of of uh, of time. Because we do think that today really is Friday, and you can't just say that. No, no, it's it's actually Thursday. 
uh, even though you really could and nothing, you know, you know, nature would never, would never correct us. But, but uh, so, so that's, that's why I, I'm, I'm skeptical as to whether uh, if the week is doing damage to us, which it could be, but I'm, I'm skeptical that, that the reason would be that the week is distinctively artificial. If, yeah. Again, just to make sure I've, 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 I've sort of said, uh, one uh, is that I don't think that, that natural, time is necessarily any better for us uh two i don't think that the time units that we have that are rooted in nature are actually really natural anymore uh and three is most people don't experience the week as, as artificial so maybe it doesn't it, it doesn't actually estrange them from nature i don't uh, know yeah oh, great great points yeah. okay well uh with your permission i want to go ahead and transition us to the next part of the interview the enlightening lightning round the enlightening lightning round is a series of <laughs> on a variety of topics um, my aim for the most part is to ask the question and just stand aside, let you answer, but also to keep us moving. So you're welcome to answer as long as you want. But my, one of my aims here is to, is, is for my part to be concise. Okay. All right. Question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a, um, a mystery. Okay. Number two. Here I'm borrowing the technologist and investor Peter Thiel's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on? Mm. <laughs> There's so many. Uh, it's not good to wake up early in the morning. Okay. You said there were so many. Was there another that popped to mind as uh, well? Uh, there, there, uh, um, well, that the only way to lead him, lead him, meaningful sorry i am trying to frame it as the thing that i think or the thing that they think yeah i uh very few would agree with the idea that you can have a meaningful life without having children oh without having children okay all right thank you question number three if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip what would the shirt say i love the alphabet Okay. Question number four. So what book other than one of your own, have you gifted or recommended most often? Uh, maybe cherry by, uh, Mary Carr or, uh, the mezzanine by Nicholson Baker. I'm not familiar with either of these books. Why, why these books? One's a memoir. One's uh, one's um, fiction. Uh, uh, I tend to recommend books to people because I think that they would like them. These are both terrific books, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend them to the same person. But they are distinctive uh, and beautiful. And um, I don't know. I I I think that uh, I think friends appreciate books where they recognize something distinctive in the way they think or talk about the world. And then when you give someone a book, they recognize that that's also a bond that they share with you. Yeah. Right on. All right. Question number five deals with travel, you know, like in the good old days when we used to do that sort of thing, <laughs> but what is one travel hack, meaning something you do when you travel or something you take with you to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable? I mean, I have so many boring answers to that. I travel very, very frequently and I do many, many little things 
Perfect. To, to, uh, so this, this is in some ways a good question, sometimes a bad question. Because I, I, so I, uh, I mean, I do things like uh, I, in San Francisco Airport, I'll check in in the international terminal for a domestic flight because I'll get a shorter line on clear and TSA pre-check, uh, and then and then flip to the other term for the flip to, to the other the other terminal. Uh, I uh, what I do if if I'm if I'm um, accompanying a f- friend to a flight and uh, want to um, uh, want to see them to the gate, I'll purchase a frequent flyer award ticket on their flight uh, to get through security, and then I'll cancel it and redeposit the miles after after I say wow. goodbye to them at the gate. I travel very lightly. Uh, uh, I mean, I pack very lightly and I travel with, with, uh, very little, um, I mean, I'm sure lots of other kinds of baggage, but very little physical material, material baggage. Uh, yeah, those, I mean, I mean, the, you know, I, I have all kinds of credit card shenanigans and things of that sort that make it more affordable wow. to, to, to travel. Yeah. Uh, awesome. we could go on, we could go on with that, that subject for too long. So as I say, it seems like a good question for me, but it's actually, it's actually a horrible one because, uh, <laughs> All right, because uh, I, I have too much to say about that subject. Yeah. yeah, that sounds like that. If you don't already have one, like there's a whole blog right there, just waiting to be written. Oh, yeah, and and I, and I I read I read some of those some of those blogs too. <laughs> you know, I'll just share with you because you mentioned traveling light. Um, there was a guest on the show a couple of years ago, Alan Weiss Weissman. He wrote uh, "The World Without Us." Mm-hmm. Talks about where he'll travel internationally, and he never. Many guests have said this that they only travel carry on. Yeah. He said that one of the things that he'll do is he he's gone to the sporting goods store and bought one of those fly fisherman's vests. So he can just pack it. It's like another, it's another small carry on worth of stuff on his person. I was like, that is so smart. I haven't done that yet though. Mm, no, I, I, I do always, always take carry on, but, uh, um, yeah. Uh, I have not tried the fly fishing suits. It's not, not exactly my, my, a good fashion fit for me, but, um, under a jacket, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Um, question number six, what is, what is one thing you started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Hmm. Um, I have stopped though, maybe a long time ago, worrying about how old or young my friends are. Uh, I think that helps you age well to not see yourself as part of a, of, of an age cohort, um, to not think that your life needs to change or develop in some way because of your age. That could also be another thing that I, I disagree with lots of people about. Um, yeah. I, I, I think it's good to have n- let norms of age appropriate behavior weigh very lightly upon you. Uh, I, I, I definitely have tried to eat more healthfully, uh, uh, you know, as, as a way of, of aging less painfully, but, um, but I'm sure everyone says that. So does that, is there any specific specific food or or beverage you've given up or begun or supplement or any, anything? I think at some point it's been a while I gave up orange juice Mm. that that wasn't as good for me as I, I used to think it was a lot of sugar in that. Yeah. Okay. Question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew? Mm. 
I that's a hard question to ask a U.S. historian because there there are like a million little things that that or that I think of as big things that uh, that I wish every American knew. So let me take a moment to see if I could um, specifically the people I wish every American knew about about the American past. Uh, I guess I wish every American knew uh, in some greater detail the history of of slavery in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do. I, I do too. And I, I just, I do want to go sideways on my own enlightening Latin rant to ask you because uh, of course you are a bona fide American historian. I've had a, a few people on my show uh, like Mark Charles, who's a member of the Navajo nation who's run, he ran for president in the yeah. last cycle and so forth. And he has a lot to say about this and, and, and other people that I've talked to both on the show and off that, you know, to say it crassly, you know, that the history of this country is a history of slavery and genocide. And this is something I think we haven't yet really come to terms with as a society. And I'm not sure what it would look like if we did or how we would do it, but what's, and I know that could be its own hours long conversation, but what's your take on, on a, you know, like coming to terms with that aspect of our history and maybe healing from it, if that's a thing, like, yeah. So I, should, I, 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 I should say that, um, I, I agree with, with that. And I, and, uh, I, I agree with the idea that there needs to be some healing, but when I said before that, I wish Americans knew, knew about it. I really just mean, I wish they knew more about it. I don't necessarily, uh, need uh, Americans to <clears throat> decide that are that on balance the story of the of US history is a story of genocide and slavery I, I don't disagree with that I mean not only that but it, I do sure. uh, uh, but I, I I don't need I don't I don't think Americans need to come all to come to terms with that fact I actually just wish they would know know that history uh, mm-hmm. a little bit now as for your question is what it would take to heal I really don't know I mean um, uh, it is very, very difficult, uh, uh, and it's a you know lots of societies do this. We see this in South Africa, in in in, in Germany. Uh, what does it mean for people to to reckon with uh, either their complicity, which is harder to do when you're talking about intergenerational complicity, or with just their benefit? Right. I mean, there was, what do you do with the fact that you and I and most people are the beneficiaries of historical developments and historical misdeeds uh, that no one would consciously repeat. Right. So what do you do? Do do you divest yourself of those benefits and do you, or do you just make clear that you're aware of it? Uh, Do you try to um, compensate people that you think of as either the victims or the descendants or the counterparts in some way. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm more agnostic about the, the, that general question. Um, I, I have views on particular questions. I mean, I, 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 I do think that, that, just, that uh, um, transitional justice or transgenerational justice uh, is, uh, is a coherent concept and that um a lot of the things that people propose for for reparations etc are 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 um are called for by the demands of justice i don't necessarily think that that heals 
I think he, healing and, and just policy are, are, are different goals. They're both worthy goals, but they're, they're different. And I don't, um, I don't have any uh, particular insights as to how uh, we achieve the healing one. Uh, I do think that, that um, education is, is probably the, the most reliable tool, but uh, you know, education of course is a controversial uh, is a controversial technology, right? People disagree on what should be taught, how it should be taught and how uh, it should be used to sort of uh, uh, to produce either justice or healing. Um, but I guess the main thing I would say is I, I, I don't think that justice and, and, and healing super worthy goals uh, are, are necessarily always aligned. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a keen insight. Thank you for that. And thank you for letting me take attention off that question. So, okay. Uh, question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about making relationships work? Mm. Always, uh, always accepting the fact that someone else is going to see things differently from you and trying hard to, uh, to understand both, both perspectives, try to sort of tell a story as you perceived it and tell a story as someone else perceived it. Um, and, uh, and accept the, the reality, if not necessarily always the legitimacy of, of someone else's experience. Mm. That's an interesting way to say that the reality of, even if not the legitimate legitimacy. I mean, yeah. I mean, so everyone's, everyone's experience is, is legitimate in the, in the sense that everyone's entitled to their experiences, but, but, uh, but if, if, if you discount someone else's perspective, just because you believe firmly that it's inaccurate um, and you treat that as the end of the story, then you won't have a relationship with that person. I don't just mean that you'll have conflict and, it'll, and you'll cease to, 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 to be able to have a relationship with that person. You won't actually have a meaningful connection of any sort. You won't, you won't actually be able to relate to that person. Yeah. All right. And the, the last thing, last question here in the lightning round is um, aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money? Mm. Uh, I, I, again, um, uh, this is a bad question for me because I have too many, <laughs> too many thoughts about it. Uh, here, you're, you're hitting all the, uh, all right. I would say that um, I, I have learned uh, probably all right, one thing I'll say uh, uh, is the money you have is, is not, um, is not the result of deserving or meriting it. Uh, that um, you, 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 you may have acquired it legitimately and you may have acquired it through hard work Uh but money is one of those things that gets, like other resources, gets maldistributed, uh, distributed haphazardly, um, and uh, uh, you know you want to take take care of it uh, as you see fit. But um, uh, and this is not not necessarily an argument against private property. It's an argument against thinking of. Of, of private property or, or money as one's just desserts in life that try to decouple the question of wealth from the question of, of, uh, of, of merit or, or uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, identity. So I, 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 I have always tried to think of, of, of money as a tool. I find getting rid of money very, uh, if I have it very liberating. Um, uh, I, 
I've learned a lot about money from from gambling. Actually, I I, I don't do it much any these days, uh, but um, I have always enjoyed gambling. And one of the things I like about gambling is it really uh, not only separates money from questions of merit; it separates money from questions of value. Right? Um, if 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 you when you go to, say to a casino and you uh, you know risk you risk $10 on, you know, the roll of a dice or the turn of a card, you're acknowledging that you're paying for nothing. Right. Yeah. Uh, maybe entertainment, which is <clears throat> often like, I like to spend money for experiences rather than for objects, but, but um, uh, you're, you're, you're risking the possibility of spending <clears throat> something for nothing. And you're also hoping to get something for nothing. You're hoping to get something in return for nothing, but the fact that you've, that you've been willing to make a risk. Uh, and this is obviously true, not just for gambling, it's true for, obviously for investments, but true for uh, other things as well. I, I like the idea that money can be something for nothing rather than the idea that money represents labor or represents objects of value uh, because it becomes easier to not live a life where you're constantly thinking about money if you reduce it to, to a game. Now, obviously, if you don't have enough money for your basic needs, that's not what money is. Um, but but for many people I know who have enough money for their basic needs, I mean, they have a job or they have some kind of family resource or they have some kind of cushion, uh, they still mostly think of money, as, as many people do, uh, as, uh, as representing labor that they've expended or representing objects that they would like to acquire. And it does represent that in a way, right? Uh, uh, but the more I think that I can think about money as, uh, as, as just a game, uh, uh, the more likely I am to make good decisions about my life because then I'll be thinking about experiences and objects and labor, not in terms of their financial equivalent. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that's a very thoughtful perspective. And I, I suspect I'm going to be reflecting on that for, for a little while. Um, so thank you for that. And speaking of uh, money and gratitude, one of the things that I've done uh, is I've made a microloan to an entrepreneur in Sierra Leone on your behalf through Kiva.org oh, there in San Francisco. Yes. Um, one, yeah. yeah. She's a 30 year old named Salamatu. She will use this. She's married. She has three children who are all between the ages of two and 10 and she, she runs a retail business. She sells cosmetics. So this money will go to help her grow her business. And then with the interest that's paid, uh, it won't go to me. It'll go to the field partner who manages it. So hopefully that will be part of a virtuous cycle where just the act of us having a conversation, hopefully people listening benefit, but at least one entrepreneur somewhere else in the world, hopefully will benefit from this as well. So thank you for that. Makes, me. That makes me feel, feel, feel good. I, 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 I maybe it, goes without saying, but I should just make clear what I, then what I was saying b before that if you have an attitude toward money that, that I try to have, which is a, that it's really, you know, just imagine uh, uh, it can also make you much more, much, much, much more, much more generous. Um, and uh, I'm clearly, you're an extraordinarily generous person. So you've found your way to generosity, uh, you know, uh, however you have, um, uh, but for me, um, what's made it easier to be generous or what reinforces generosity is not only uh, the example of, of, of my father who, uh, 
uh, was someone who didn't have a lot of money and didn't actually care about things, but um, was extraordinarily, or maybe and was extraordinarily generous, but also this constant reminder that that the, any money that comes my way is not the result of, 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 of deserving it. It makes it much easier to give money away. And, uh, and the gambling thing does that too. You know, if you walk out of a casino and you've lost a hundred dollars uh, or $500 and someone on the street asks you for, for money, for, uh, for food, you're far more likely to give it to them. Cause you like, you're like, if I'm willing to, to spend $500 on nothing and give it away to some large corporation, um, who am I to say no, no to someone's basic need? But, but uh, on the other hand, if you win $500, um, the same thing, you're like, well, this $500 is just, just the result of, 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 of random luck. Uh, I happen to have it. Uh, here's someone who could actually use it. So no. anyway, I mean, I know everyone, everyone comes to generosity in, in, in different ways and everyone uh, tries to discipline their gener- generosity through different means. And maybe the surprising thing is that, uh, I try to do it by by uh, taking less seriously rather than more seriously the value of money for myself, and it makes it easier to 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 figure out when someone actually really does need money. Yeah. I so, know. but but I should say on behalf of 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 all of the the beneficiaries of your generosity, uh, thank you. So. Well, thank you. Okay, so this brings us to the final part of our interview here, and uh, I know we're we're coming down the stretch. We're about the time we said we'd spend. But uh, the last part here is just an exploration of writing and the creative process, uh, specifically with the idea that things that uh, you share will benefit people listening who want to complete their own writing projects right? and actually want to produce finished work, get it out into the world, get it read, <laughs> have it make a difference for people and so forth. So maybe, maybe a place to start is just to ask, um, what you've learned about writing and, and that served you well, and maybe in particular, who has been influential for you as a writer? Like who have you learned from either personally or through things you've read, you know, things others have written, like who has been meaningful in your development as a writer? And what have you learned from them? It's a hard question. I, 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 I mean, I'm someone who always likes to acknowledge debts to other people so this is hard for me to to admit that i don't actually know uh who has been most helpful to me as a writer i mean i read all the time mm-hmm. and i do read lots of fiction and i read lots of memoir and i read lots of people who write about writing so i i i think about uh think about writing that way um i suppose the lesson that i've taken from many of the most influential authors is that it's it's always about words uh for me as a reader and so i try to make it all about words and by which i mean it's about the language as as much as it's about the story uh it's about the voice that you have as a writer as much as it is about the content or 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 the argument um which is you know uh, a a lesson i that's uh I cling to obstinately because I, 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 I write and I work in a profession that often says the opposite. That's really just about the argument. It's about uh, the research. It's about the analytic coherence and all those things are important to me. You, you can't write the kind of books I write without them. Uh, but um, I do see an analogy between 
all, all forms of writing, fiction and nonfiction, uh, polemical argumentative works and creative speculative ones. I think in all cases, it's about trying to make words do magical things. Even if you're writing uh, in, it seems like very dry language, uh, uh, words are still magical. Uh, they're, they're capable of, of, um, of producing surprise and producing um, uh, sort of wonder in, 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 in people. And I, uh, no one's ever said this to me, but uh, people have, my reading and writing experience and uh, uh, has, has led me to infer from other people that uh, every book is really a story about the language. So every book is written in English is in some ways um, about the English language. And I, I, so I, I, I tried to, to keep that lesson. Um, I don't know which people have influenced me as, um, as writers. I'm sure that my father did. Uh, uh, my father also wrote books. He wrote books differently from, from me, but I think he communicated maybe more by example than by precept, or maybe more by the way he also thought about language. Um, uh, some version of the lesson that I just de described. So that's really about like the purpose of writing or the um, or the pleasure of writing. In terms of the discipline of writing, I think that's that's a hard that's a hard thing. That's something that I struggle with. Um, uh, I do write somewhat easily the first time around, and then I often have a hard time rewriting and revising. But I think other people, for other people, it's the opposite. The hardest thing is to sort of get it out the first time. And the easiest thing is once you do to shape it and sculpt it afterwards. I think that that's just a, a matter of personality. I think we all have a harder time writing in this distracted world where the same device that we write on is typically the device that we use for our fantasy football teams or to watch movies or to conduct the entirety of our social lives or, um, you know, manage stock portfolios or, you know, uh, you know, consume TikTok videos and things. So, so that's a really hard thing. And, you know, there are obviously all these, you know, the, uh, uh, techniques that you can use to try to shut off the, dis the distraction or there are people who do things like consecrate one device for writing. And uh, I, I don't actually, I haven't been so good at doing any of those things. One thing that, I, that really helped me write this book uh, in particular um, was uh, going away every summer um, because I, ha and during the summers that I, I, I don't teach. And so that's often when I, when I do, uh, I get a lot of my research and in, in, in writing done, going away the summer uh, without my books. Um, and uh, so that instead of just sitting around reading about the thing I'm writing about, I'm just saying it's just me and my computer or notepad. Uh, and I'm sitting in a cafe. I'm living in a city where I don't speak the language all that well. I speak you know, well enough to, to, to solve practical problems, but not well enough to, to form the kind of social life that would interfere with, with my work. Uh, and I just make the goal to write every day. So there are little things that we all we all do to try to 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 consecrate time and consecrate energy on on writing. But I'm not sure that mine are necessarily useful to other people's. Yeah, you said that um, you and your dad wrote books differently. You write books differently. How? how what's what's the difference? 
Well, okay. So I, I, I mean, um, my, my, my father was a, a law professor and, um, so, um, and he wrote about constitutional law and international law and human rights. And he, uh, so, uh, it's a different kind of writing. I, I have a brother who's a, um, a very successful novelist and he, he writes quite differently too. Um, uh, my mother had done some writing and, uh, my 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 other brother mostly communicates with the world through through music uh uh and everyone everyone uh does does their thing differently and works in a different genre um but i i i think that i i was probably both both my brothers and i were probably all uh affected in different ways by um our parents interest in language and especially I think my father's uh, interest in, in how words work. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You talked about doing, making language do magical things. And uh, I love that as an idea. And someone once pointed out to me, like even the word spelling, right. The, the connotation of magic, the spells and so forth. Yeah. That's nice. I've, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. And um, I know there's probably no, there's no simple trick you know, to this, but there are people will talk about stay away from adjectives and adverbs and be more noun based or be more verb based and, you know, or put the, I don't even know what you call it. The, if it's a subject or the payoff at the end of the sentence and things like this, but, or the use of punctuation, you know, short sentences, more staccato or da, da, da. Like I asked someone once, I said, what are the qualities? So I'll ask you this question too. And I want to keep it in that framework of making language do magical things. But I said, um, what are the qualities of a great, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how do we write more of them? So, I mean, all, you know, uh, all of the things that you mentioned are pieces of advice that I've gotten along the way. I'm not sure I've actually taken any of them to heart, <laughs> but I, I, I do have my own, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so my thing is prepositions. I don't, I, I don't like them. Uh, I don't mean prepositions at the end of sentence. I mean prepositions at all. So I, I try to, uh, in my own writing and, and in the writing of my students, um, to encourage them to use verbs that don't require prepositions. And a preposition, if I recall, these are the on, about, above, between, beyond. Exactly. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the, so the difference between uh, inhabiting and living in. Uh, so there are other things, pro and con, but the verb inhabit, but, but just to give, a, give, give an example, there are, if you, if you, a, a, a verb that doesn't require a preposition winds up cleaning, cleaning up your sentence and think, making it, move differently um, sure. and i think that if if um um you know if if if, if i it, i have sometimes tried to compile lists of great verbs that uh that uh are preferable to me than than some of their alternatives exclusively because they allow you to get rid of a preposition mm. yeah that's that's cool the the thing that this one guest said I, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but he said, um, the example he gave, I'll always remember. He said, the weapons are in the shed behind the barn. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's clean. It's succinct. Yeah. It conveys something, you know, like, I was right. Like, no, the, I, I think that that is a, a very common lesson I've heard. I, I have always resisted that. I, I actually love adverbs. Yeah. I think adverbs are great because they, they say a whole other thing while you're going and put multiple images in your mind and say something subtly and obliquely, uh, you know, uh, I, 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 you know, I definitely have been told now 
nouns and verbs. No, choose the noun and verb that already incorporates the adjective or the adverb. I, I get why people do that. Um, and I do like having uh, some short staccato sentences with, with straightforward uh, sentence structures in my writing, but, um, but I actually love adverbs and adjectives and especially adverbs. Um, yeah, the part of speech that I, that I don't like is the preposition. So. Interesting. What, um, how aware are you? Well, let me ask this. In your view, are writers born or made or can they be made? Are you either a writer or not a writer? What's your no? I, 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 but in general, I'm not a, I'm not a people are born kind of person. I'm, I'm a people are made kind of person. Yeah. Whether, whether it's, I mean, uh, they may be made early in life, uh, and they be hard, may be hard to unmake. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that writing is. I don't think we're born with an organ of writing, and I think. Uh, also writing isn't necessarily just one thing. There's so many different, uh, skills and some, or habits or features or qualities to writing that, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, it'd be hard for me to believe that certain people were meant to write and some people were meant not to write. Yeah. Um, yeah. What are, this might seem like a dumb question. <laughs> what, what can we do to improve as writers or to improve our writing? I think really I have the most conventional possible answer to that, which is read. Yeah. Read. Yeah. Read lots, read differently, read, um, read with an ear toward what someone is doing with language and what kind of effect it's having on you as a reader. You know? um, yeah. And, and also, you know, we do so much writing, all of us. Uh, uh, one of the big transitions that, that I think has taken place during, during my lifetime is uh, so many things that used to be spoken are now written, right? And people talk often about the death of the written word, death of the letter. I don't, I don't believe any of that. I think the opposite has happened. I think, uh, uh, I think writing is actually much more common than speech in our social lives through email and text and things like that. It's obviously a different kind of writing. And email and text are not the same, and right, and multimedia writing is not the same. So I don't. It's not, it's not that all writing is the same, but we just do a lot more of it than we used to when we used to conduct so much of our social lives and our business lives over the telephone. Yeah, no doubt. So Zoom is interesting because Zoom has sort of reintroduced the uh, uh, speech in new prominent ways, you know, over the last couple of years. Uh, but the the bigger sort of slow change over the last 30 years, I think has been toward more writing. Uh, so all of which is to say that we, um, we spend a lot of time composing written text and that too is writing. And I'm not saying everyone should be like, uh, you know, either uh, pedantically preoccupied with their grammar or uh, art, artistically, you know, uh, floral or prolific or whatever in, 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 in their text messages. Uh, but, you know, you're always developing your own style uh, in every context. And you're always thinking about what you're trying to do with words and how your word choices and sentence structures do things in the world. And um, I think that's great. I think that that's like practice. And if we, if we think about that, it makes it easier to, to do things like write books or write articles or write, or write poems. Yeah. yeah. How aware are you or how connected do you feel to your reader while you're in the act of writing? Um, not, not that well connected. It's, it's hard, you know, in uh, academic writing, 
is especially odd that way because you're trained uh, as as a student and you're in school for all these years and people have been spend six, seven, eight years getting PhDs. Uh, uh, so teacherly kind of voices are mm-hmm. heavily in your ear mm-hmm. throughout your training. One or maybe two or three people are going to read this and they're going to read it critically and they're going to read it to assess. And it's a little bit hard to shake that, to shake that, that sense of the audience. And as you do more academic writing, more scholarly writing, the 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 um the audience expands a little bit uh to include all the people in your field people who are going to review it the people who are going to you know give you jobs and promote you and all and all that uh but still not that 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 big uh uh so that's i think a challenge when you're in my profession and in your writing even when you want to write for a broader audience you're so conditioned to think of a small number of intense, highly critical, very thorough readers, whereas in fact, what you really are writing for is a, a larger number of not so intense, not so critical, and not so thorough readers. And that transition is difficult. The one thing that's made it easier for me, um, personality, and maybe it's because I'm a middle child, I don't know, I've always been uh, more attuned to, uh, to peers than to authority figures. I've always been more aware of the possibility that that uh, classmates or friends uh, will be the audience for not just my writing, but for my for my living, uh, and rather than just parents and bosses and mentors. Uh, so I think that served that says sort of served me well in this way, maybe not in others, but served me well in in this way, um, which is it's a little easier for me to to uh, to tune out the uh, the the imagined teacher or advisor or, or judge uh, and help me try to write for a, a community, a group. Um, uh, and then also friends. I have, I have lots of friends and I, I, I value friendship um, uh, uh, probably as much as any, any other sort of institution or practice. And when you asked me earlier in the conversation, you prepared me that you would for what, what's life all about, uh, friendship was my first, my first thought. And then I thought I might expand a little bit. So, so, uh, so I do have a little bit of a tendency to, to try to, uh, write, write for friends. I, 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 I spent, um, a long time writing a, a, a U.S. history textbook with a, a friend and, co- and colleague of mine. Uh, so I was, you know, writing really for, for, it's very unusual. I was writing for, for, uh, readers who would be forced to read it and who would be, because they'd be assigned in their college class, and they'd yep. be reading it sort of defensively and reading it just like, like just for the information to be able to give it back on a test perhaps. Uh, but even in that book, I found myself constantly dropping little, little Easter egg kind of things for friends of mine, um, which, which, which I do often. So that's maybe a, a, an answer that, that uh, you, you can't really imagine who your readers are going to be. And one of the nice things about the, the, the great publicity that this book has gotten is, is uh, um, you know, I get people emailing me now from all parts of the world talking about their own connections to the week. And, and, and the, the biggest sort of uh, uh, experience of it that I have is, is, wow, this is not at all the kind of person I ever imagined would be, would be reading my book. So it is always impossible to imagine your readers. Um, and it's helpful to me sometimes to, 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 to keep, keep in mind that I'm writing for multiple audiences and idea that your friends might read the book, even though they're not, obviously not the intended audience uh, mm-hmm. is a good way of just 
keeping an open an open uh, approach to, to who the readership might be. Lots of different kinds of people might read it for different reasons and different contexts. And um, you want it, you just hope that it'll speak to, to, to some of them um, in different ways, maybe ways that you didn't intend or maybe ways you didn't appreciate. Um, uh, but that's one of the cool things about, about, about publication, uh, uh, which is that, you know, you let go of these words and you, you, you never know where they go. You, you never know. And, and you, you not only never know in advance, you also never know after the fact, you never know sure. what, what they did. Right? Yeah. That's awesome. And, and, and what a cool thing to have something that you leave behind as well when yeah. you're here. That's right. pretty cool. Okay. So just a couple more questions. So I want to turn to or maybe return to the, uh, the practical or maybe the tactical aspect of your writing. You mentioned in the summers, you'll actually go to a city, go to a coffee shop. I know that's a very personal decision. And I actually think this is part of the challenge for every writer is figuring out what works for them. Do you write with music or not? Do you write in the morning or in the evening? Do you caffeine? And if so, what form? And you know, like all of this. So, so what I wonder is when you write, like what kinds of routines do you what kinds of routines do you have that support you in producing finished work and producing quality work? Do you use word counts? Do you have a timer? Do you do any, like what, from big to small, what kind of habits and routines yeah. are part of yeah, your I, I have I have lots of uncommon answers to these. Uh, uh, I write at night. I know most people I know like to write in the morning. I sort of think of it as the same thing. You know, you're trying to carve out time where you're least likely to be uh, interrupted, disrupted, or tempted by uh, the activities of other people. Uh, so for many people, that's the morning. And for me, it's the night. I, um, I, I write overwhelmingly at night, often between the hours of 10 p.m. and 3 a.m. Um, I, uh, I can write late at night much more easily than I can read. Often if I'm reading after midnight, I'll get tired or distracted, but writing actually focuses me. So um, even just the act of typing, I'm, I'm like better at answering emails late at night than I am at reading emails late at night. Even so, so, so that's that's one thing. Um, I do I do prefer there to be music, which I know is not that common. I also even don't mind if the music has lyrics. Yeah, a lot of people listen to, listen to music but don't want there to be words. Uh, yeah. I like I like music. I I guess I prefer it be music that I before. Uh, so I'm not actually thinking about too much about you know who this band is and how that you know how that baseline is going or anything like that um so i I prefer that but but i I do like there to be some kind of music too much quiet is bad for me i like to be ambient noise but i don't like there to be people distracting or tempting me off of the computer that's why music late at night is is the right is the right combination um there was oh i i don't usually usually use word counts I do think of paragraphs. I think of paragraphs as the unit of productivity. I also think of paragraphs as the unit of, of, of making meaning too. Um, even in more creative writing projects, I think that I, I just think of the, the paragraph is what you work with rather than the, the page, the sentence or, or the words. I'm, I'm, I'm big on paragraphs. And I, I definitely, when I, when I, I teach, uh, I teach academic writing to, to, um, to my students, I, I try to give them exercises that reinforce the idea of the paragraph as the fundamental unit of, of written communication, certainly in, um, in, in writing history. But again, I, I think of it that way, even in, in other kinds of, you know, other kinds of writing. Uh, so if I'm trying to tell myself, I need to 
finish a certain amount or just trying to tell my trying to assess what I've done. I'll often think of how many, how many paragraphs have I, have I, have I written? I don't do things that people do like reward myself after every paragraph with some pleasurable activity, but, uh, uh, but yeah, again, I, I, that, that's the kind of accounting I do is, is paragraph oriented. Yeah. Hmm. Right on. I had never encountered that until I interviewed um, Todd. I'm forgetting his last name, but he showed me the book he was working on and it was outlined chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, the whole thing was like, Oh my gosh, that was wild to me. I'm incapable of doing that, but I do actually encourage that in, in my students. I tell them, you know, when we work on outlines, the best outline you could have would be one that tells you what goes in each paragraph. Yeah. Um, so I, that, I, 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 I aspire to have that and I may do that informally in my head, but, but I don't have the, the discipline or organization to actually produce such an outline. Yeah, that was, it's Todd Rose, the author of Dark Horse, and he spent time at Harvard and so forth. But in, before that, I hadn't encountered the, really the power of the paragraph as the fundamental unit of meaning, but I'll think of it that way now. Well, um, maybe the last thing then is just what, so two-part question again, um, or maybe you can consolidate however you want to answer. The first one is what, what advice or encouragement do you leave anyone listening to this, who is either they haven't started their own creative project or they're maybe in the middle of it. What advice or encouragement do you give them to help them finish and get it out into the world? And then the last, the last question is just what, what final thoughts generally or related to writing, what do you want to leave people listening with? Okay. Well, I, a couple of things. I mean, if, if it makes it easier to finish, uh, uh, I, as, as it often does for me, to, to recognize the fact that once you're actually done, you're still going to wish you had changed this or that. So the, 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 there, you can't wait for the moment where you feel like this is my last word on the subject because that moment will never come. Mm. And you know, I, just, uh, I can just jump in there. I don't know if you use this, but I've heard it said and it served me. Like books are never finished, only published. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, and, and publication is often a, a, a part of a process. I mean, even this book and this conversation, right? So you know, I, I spent 12 or 13 years researching and writing this book. I wasn't the only thing I, I did those years, but uh, researching and writing this book. Um, part of the reason it took so long is because I really kept finding more stuff and kept not wanting to end. Um, and the reason why, why I was able to end, well, I guess it was two. One is I, you know, I was really ready to to, to write a different, a different kind of book. Um, uh, but also that I recognize that uh, this won't be the last word I, I have on this subject, much as it's not the last word I, I mean, much as the earlier books that I've written, I'm still sometimes given opportunities to, to talk about it and uh, elaborate or revise something I've said. Um, and I'll, and that's happening right now. I mean, the things that I'm, that we're talking about, especially before we were talking about, about, about the week are not identical to the things that I've said in the book. I mean, I'm very happy with, with the book when I look at it. Um, but um, I know it's sort of, you know, by its nature, unfinished and conversations that we have like, like, like this are opportunities or, or inducements to, uh, to keep alive whatever whatever I thought I was doing in the book. So if if you can acknowledge that as 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 you said, books are never finished; they're just published, and the publication is 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 a is a which one step in in the process of getting your your thoughts and your words out to the world. Maybe that makes it easier 
easy, easier to finish it and just say, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to write other books. I'm going to publish other things. I'm going to have other conversations and, um, life is short and, uh, and I want to do this. So, uh, and the other thing is just, just, just to, 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 uh, appreciate how, um, what a privilege it is, whatever allows you to spend your time writing a book, you know, whatever, whatever financial uh, freedom you're, you're, you're given that enables that, whatever time the people in your life have, 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 have given you, um, whatever uh, intellectual or, uh, you know, even just verbal or linguistic resources uh, you, you've been given that allows you to, to spend time crafting a book over a long period of time. It's like such a privilege. Um, um, just, just keep telling you. I keep telling myself that, uh, and it puts all the frustration into perspective. It, uh, right? Um, you know, you're doing this for yourself. I mean, obviously, you want to to communicate with people, but like many acts of expression, you're really doing it for yourself. And uh, most people don't get a chance to do that. They don't have the time or the or the freedom from having to, to do something else for money or, um, or just haven't been given the, the, the space or the resources to write a book and, and, you know, one way or another you have. And so uh, just, just feel good about that. And, and don't let, don't let the, the book become this sort of external obligation or the symbol of your, of your inadequacy or this uh, impossible goal to reach um uh so yeah that's what i said and then the other the other thing which actually goes back to travel so one of the things that i like to do is um uh or i'm willing to do that most people aren't this this, this answers actually several of your earlier questions uh is i'm willing to travel very very far for a very short period of time mm-hmm. and the reason is i mean i of course almost always rather stay for longer uh that if you're willing to uh visit a place or a person for a short period of time um, you're much more likely to do it again. And if you tell yourself that you're going to do it again, it's easier to leave the short visit, right? So if you're able to, to, to travel frequently, um, uh, it unburdens each trip, each social visit, each tourist stop. Uh, it, it, it unburdens that, that trip from the obligation to do everything that you want to do. I don't have to see everything in, you know, in the Yucatan. I don't have to like... Uh, you know, visit everyone I know in the Philadelphia metropolitan area, right? Uh, because I'm going to come back. Yeah. Um, so if you can do that with, uh, it's not the, you know, the, the, there is something nice about spending a huge amount of time on a book. And, and I certainly ha- uh, do that all the time. Uh, but you can also say to yourself, I'd like to do this and I'm going to do it more quickly because I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to this project. I'm going to come back to, to another project. I'm going to write more things. And, uh, and that may unburden them from the obligation to, to be perfect. Since I, I, I am assuming that for many of, the, of, of your listeners and many of the people that you have in mind, it's the perfectionism that makes that as, as much of, a, of an obstacle or an impediment as, as anything else. Yeah. yeah, that's certainly true in my case, <laughs> for sure. But I really appreciate what you're sharing about viewing it as, you know, really as the privilege that it is to be able to write a book. It's, yeah. uh, and simultaneously, I'll just, you know, say for myself that there's, there is a view there that's very empowering, but there's also one that has a burden with it. That you know, like, Oh, 
you know, by comparison, you're blessed to have this and so many other people don't, you know, then it starts to feel a little, little heavy. But. Yeah, no, I, 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 I get that. And I think, I mean, you know, I've, I've been resisting temptation to ask you lots of questions. I know that that's not the point of this conversation, but, <laughs> but, but I, 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 you know, I, I, I've gathered an, enough from what I've read about you and from this conversation to understand how that might be especially burdensome for you. Uh, I try not to think of it as a burden. I try to think of it as uh, uh, not like I owe the world something because I have the privilege, but just um, uh, just just to be to be happy. You know, there's a uh, a famous saying um, um, in my own religious tradition, which is the uh, the person who is wealthy is the person the person who is who is pleased, pleased with his or her lot or portion. So, you know, I, 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 I don't think that the idea of, of, of privilege should be about feeling guilty or feeling, uh, uh, which or feeling obligate, uh, obligated. Um, I think it should be about uh, feeling content and feeling at, at ease. And then, and then you can approach the obligations that, that come with what, whatever privilege you have but but um uh the first thing is to just try try to try to feel pleased um with 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 what you have not 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 so self-satisfied or proud or feeling that you deserve it but just to 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 to, to take take some sort of pleasure in it yeah Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated or you've gone through a divorce or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.